on this episode of The Kinked Wire. So in general, an OBL might be more easy to stand up. There might be less cost associated with an OBL and fewer hurdles from a regulatory standpoint for a physician to jump over. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, host Dr. Roger Kamahama speaks with interventional radiologist Dr. Joel Rainwater about his experience building a network of 12 off-space labs in five states, what IRs should keep in mind when considering the OBL business model, opportunities for IRs in training, and more. Joel, just want to say thank you for joining us. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me and uh, appreciate the opportunity. You have a quite a unique story, and you know, I'm not sure if all the listeners are aware, but could you tell us a little bit of your training, your background, and your OBL experience? I, uh, I'm an interventional radiologist. I uh, actually hail from Texas. Uh, I went to undergrad at Baylor University, Sikkim Bears. I did my medical school at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. Following medical school, I did a uh, categorical medicine internship at Parkland Hospital, and then I completed my residency training at Duke University Medical Center, where I uh, concentrated on IR electives heavily, and then did a fellowship in angiography and interventional radiology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, which was an integrated fellowship with Texas Heart Hospital and Herman Hospital, which at that time was the transplant center. So I finished all that in 1997. And at that time, two of my fellow Duke residents had joined a growing um, and progressive multi-specialty radiology practice in Mesa, Arizona. And they uh, recruited me to come out and I fell in love with the desert and really thought the opportunity was going to be fantastic. And so I joined that group and continued to practice within that group for close to 15 years. And uh, we were developing um, a very specialty-based, academic-style private practice group in Arizona. Um, And I was very proud to be a part of that. What kind of pushed me and got me interested in this outpatient-based practice model was the financial crash of 2008 and some drastic changes in reimbursement that were occurring from the payers and from the government around that time and how it affected radiology practices in general. It became pretty evident to me that there were some value problems in some of these tertiary referral hospital-based groups in that there was just a spiraling escalation of costs for services that was outpacing what I thought to be a reasonable growth in the industry compared to, say, you know, inflation or GDP or whatever metric you would want to measure. And it just seemed to me that there might be an opportunity to provide a little more value for what we do. And that's what got me interested in developing outpatient endovascular services. Over the course of the next couple of years, I was also very fortunate to be a proctor for SurSphere's and and Y90 treatment. And I was traveling around the country from time to time, and I found myself informally taking the temperature of my IR colleagues about what they liked about their job or their career or their situation and what they didn't like. It was pretty universal that the IR community really disliked the lack of autonomy, the lack of longitudinal care for their patients. They felt like there were just these episodic encounters with some of their patients. And then, you know, they would just kind of move on to the next patient and they they lost the opportunity to help orchestrate some of that care modeling and, and some of those treatment algorithms. 
And of course, another dissatisfier was the crushing administrative bureaucracy that exists within a lot of hospitals and hospital systems. So I saw that there was a growing need for physicians to take back charge of their career path. By 2012, I decided to leave my situation and start anew. Was there a lot of legal entanglements or restrictions for you to start your own practice? Yeah, that's a great question. We, uh, you know, our, my, my group and I were, were very friendly. You know, we didn't feel like the offerings were going to be competitive. Interestingly enough, we actually toyed with the idea of the group being a part of this oh, and, okay. and having, you know, having a part ownership of whatever this endeavor might be. But ultimately, the group decided that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't their bailiwick to try it. And they wanted to continue providing inpatient excellence and continue operating the imaging centers. So mm-hmm. we were friendly about that separation. Got it. So if some individual who's part of a private practice group already that has a non-compete clause in their contract, probably the best way to navigate is just to have an open discussion with the group to see if it would be an issue or... You know, ultimately the communication is key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having an open dialogue about this. In fact, in my former group, we had open discussions during all hands on deck meetings just to make sure that we were all exploring the appropriate possibilities. But I will say that going down the legal route of trying to force the issue, uh, I think the only winners in that scenario are the attorneys. Mm-hmm. Uh, non-compete language is generally unenforceable when it comes to physicians. It's a litigated question that costs dearly to both parties. What are some of the key differences that you discovered in the hospital as compared to the OBL setting? Maybe you can give us an insight into what the OBL setting is like. It's kind of like the reflections of each other. Hospital-based practice generally centers around what are you going to be doing that day? You come into your, your hospital IR department and there's a typically a board with a bunch of cases on it. Um, in many of those cases, you may or may not know the patient beforehand, and you know there may or may not be a portion of your day that's dedicated towards helping plan that patient's care algorithm, which is just quite the opposite in the outpatient OBL setting, where every patient that's scheduled for a procedure was scheduled by you and your treatment plan. So you've seen that patient in clinic, you've identified their diagnoses, and you've orchestrated, and now you're planning to execute the treatment plan. So, you know, those, those days are filled with you seeing your patients and going through their care plan as just one stop along a lengthy train of decision making. And that, that can be very satisfying to a lot of IRs who formerly, you know, maybe were frustrated by being asked to do things that they might not have agreed with mm-hmm. from the get go. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a much more controlled environment. And then secondly, you know, the, the staff that are there in your center have been selected by you. They're your staff, you know, they're beholden to you and and how you want to run your facility. So, you know, you've got much more control over the quality um, and the personalities of the people that are going to be interacting with you and your patients. What would you say, like, and obviously you said that, you know, you're doing clinic in addition to procedures in parallel. I mean, can you give us a breakdown of like your day or the week, just uh, a typical? Part of that is relegated to personal preference. Mm-hmm. My preference is to mix cases and clinic together and to sort of sprinkle them in on the same day. And many other IRs and other specialties prefer to have a, a surgical day where they're just doing surgeries all day. And then they have a clinic day where they're just doing seeing clinic patients all day and, and mm-hmm. 
that doesn't really jive with my personality as much. I like to have a mix uh, throughout the week. Now, having said that, there are some times when I just have clinic because I might be in one of our locations where it's only a clinic site. And so that, in that regard, it, it functions very much like any other surgical subspecialist who goes to see clinic and follow up in one facility and then does their procedural and surgical care in a, in a different facility. Mm, okay. Maybe for the audience, maybe you could just give a quick, you know, what OBL stands for and what ASC stands for. Sure. Um, yeah, sure. So OBL is, is a moniker uh, for office-based lab, specifically our interventional or angiography suites or cath labs. ASC stands for Ambulatory Surgery Center. And, and it's designed to provide outpatient surgical procedures. That's the major distinction. Mm -hmm. Do you think it maybe elaborate on the basic difference between the two? What are the pros and cons requirements of each of the others? And where do you see the future for these models? Yeah, that's a, that's a big topic, of course. And um, it's at the forefront of medical policy and, and healthcare reimbursement uh, decision-making. Essentially, what we're talking about are sites of service, and those are defined by CMS as how medical delivery is provided and what site of service they are going to pay. So those payment schedules are separate. And in the case of an OBL, that's a designated place of service 11, and uh, those are defined as an extension of a physician's practice, whereas an ASC is a place of service 24, which is, again, defined separately as a facility and paid according to a different schedule. Now, a, a more simple way of thinking about that is if you were to look at an encounter that was paid in an OBL setting, it's paid according to a global fee, whereas in an ASC setting, there's a facility fee, which uh, is paid to the facility, and a professional fee that's paid to the physician. And in general, for the majority of encounters, if you were to take the global fee, it would be the sum total of the facility fee plus the pro fee within a few, you know, few dollars of each. However, that's not always the case. And there's a major difference between the regulatory environment that surrounds those two. The ASCs are highly and heavily regulated, mm -hmm. whereas the OBLs are much less heavily regulated. And those regulations change from state to state. I see. So, so in general, an OBL might be more easy to stand up. There might be less cost associated with an OBL and fewer hurdles from a regulatory standpoint for a physician to jump over. Uh, whereas in an ASC, it's more expensive. And of course, there's many more things that have to be considered so that you can satisfy those regulations and pass your accreditations. Sounds like OBL will be easier and stuff. Is there any real advantage of going the ASC route? You know, I think the um, the major difference and the, and the most important distinction is that the Ambulatory Surgery Center provides much more flexibility in the number of cases or the types of procedures that can be performed. Mm, okay. um, it's, a, it's more of a multi-specialty um, style, and it caters to a wide swath of specialists. Okay. So if you wanted to partner with a, a number of individuals like surgeons and other proceduralists, you could have those individuals participate in the ASC, whereas the OBL is strictly kind of just an IR only 
model or maybe a cardiology IR only model. Is, is that correct? That is correct. And, okay. um, you know, another point to make here is it's my belief and many of the others that are in this space that the payers are signaling their desire to move and favor the ASC over the OBL when it comes to, you know, current and future reimbursements. We've seen that um, occur in the dialysis <laughs> world recently. And now there's been some changes in reimbursement where the ASC has improved, whereas the OBL reimbursement has declined. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. So a future trend may be leaning towards ASC on a governmental or policy type of level. I think that's correct. I think yeah. that's correct. Okay, yeah. that's great. So um, we have obviously a, probably a lot of young listeners out there in the audience and they're probably interested in a future career in OBL or outpatient practice. Any recommendations to future early career IRs or someone who wanted to start their career? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first of all, congratulations. Uh, you've picked an amazing field. You know, IR, as we all know, has been on the forefront of the development of minimally invasive care for, for decades. And I think that, you know, when you look at where you want to park yourself um, and derive satisfaction from what you're going to accomplish as a professional, you want to be very picky about who you choose as partners and, and how you enter the marketplace. I don't know that a fresh or even a young IR would be well served to jump into a solo practice at this, this day and age. There's, mm -hmm. there's many impediments. Um, there's potential pitfalls um, in this space that may really make it hard for a solo or even a, even a small group of IRs to find success. You know, success in the space has been littered by the well-intentioned. And so there's just some paths that are going to provide frustration. And one of those is to assume that our skill set is plenty or more than enough to guarantee our financial uh, viability. That's just not true. It's not the field of dreams. You can't build it and assume that they will come. Um, you have to have a plan. You have to have really smart business support. And you really have to know that there's going to be some very lean months, if not years, um, at startup. And that might not be mm -hmm. something that some of the young can even tolerate. You know, many of the, the young professionals in our field have only finally been able to get their first mortgage. They've got maybe young children at home. They've got obligations and uh, it might not be advisable for them to take on massive debt, you know, from the very beginning. Yeah. However, there are growing numbers of groups and individuals that are expanding into the space that can provide infrastructure and can provide the financial flexibility to allow, you know, young physicians in our field to latch on and, and really grow their own brand and really grow their own practice and be very, very successful. So there's definitely a physician complement and all of us are looking for the success of our partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, so I would, I would encourage, uh, you know, ask questions and, um, and look and look to the market. Yeah, got it. It's great. Uh, to follow up on that, so I know you're talking about like partners. What are some of the things that an IR should look for when you know discussing potential partnership, funding options? I would look for a track record. I would um, demand to see financials. Doctors aren't typically trained to do this, but you can become very sophisticated in looking at a profit and loss spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. um, you can become very facile at understanding pro formas. 
And of course, you want to have somebody that's in your corner that's financially savvy, whether that be, you know, an accountant or um, a business advisor. Um, I would say make sure that you have somebody in your corner um, who's yeah. going to be very dispassionate. And, and physicians, for, for good or for bad, tend to make very emotional decisions when it comes to their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nice to have somebody who's much less emotional about things and be very, um, you know, sort of arm's length. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's somebody that we need to rely on. When you started this, did you have like, uh, you knew a lot of how to analyze financial statements and stuff like that? Or Yeah, not, not by training. I, I, I didn't really do much business classes when I was an undergrad. However, you know, I, I served as president of our group for uh, a number so of years. Had... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we were in a growth phase at that time. So I became sort of educated by the school of hard knocks yeah. um, in that in that regard. And so uh, I was able to develop a lot of that skill set uh, as a practicing interventional radiologist in a group. And then I, of course, learned a lot by starting small and then growing judiciously. I assume that would be a recommendation for someone also, maybe starting small, not going too big, too quick. Yes, you're very prescient to say that, Roger, because I, I have seen in some of these endeavors that fail, physicians who demand the Taj Mahal for mm-hmm. their very first you know, outpatient endeavor, and they maybe they haven't negotiated great pricing for their equipment, maybe they've yes. overpaid for you know, tenant improvements or even, even a building, and suddenly you've put yourself in such a hole that it's, it may not be possible to, to pull out of it. I see, I see. There has been some talk about uh, credentials at local hospitals to be paid by insurance or uh, having exclusive contracts. What is your view on this and how do you see it moving forward? It's one of the most commonly asked questions in my life when it comes to talking to other IRs. And I fear that it's one of the more, more enduring injustices that IRs face. And that being that, you know, if you want to practice your trade, you're almost thwarted uh, in doing so because of these exclusive contracts that diagnostic imaging groups might, mm-hmm. might hold with the, with the local hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no other specialty that has that where a physician who's perfectly well-trained and perfectly capable literally can't pick a geography to start practicing unless they're willing to throw their lot in with an exclusively retained mm-hmm. group. On its face, it sounds ridiculous, but you know, in practice, it does occur. And in some of our markets, um, there are hospital groups, radiology groups that won't even allow admitting privilege to be granted to independent IRs. Mm, wow. So it's frustrating. And, um, you know, there's economics that are involved as to how that has occurred. But the reality is, is that if you were an IR and you went to practice at a hospital, your generation of revenue to the hospital can be incredibly good for the hospital. Mm -hmm, But the reimbursement mm -hmm. for those services so favor the facility that the professional fees would not be enough. Even with a very busy practice, the professional fees to the IR would not be enough to sustain that IR salary. And in contradistinction to that, the interpretation fees to the diagnostic imagers within the hospital in an efficient model can be more than enough to cover the salary. So you have this constant push and pull mm-hmm. for the IR doctors being asked to run back to the reading room and read films so that they can maintain their contribution to the revenue. For them. Yeah. So therein lies the dichotomy. And the hospitals, for their part, don't want to subsidize the IR department for the services that they get. They would rather 
force those finances onto the group. So that puts the group, the IR and the hospital at odds. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's something that can only be solved with the need. And so if hospitals want a robust IR program because they know that it's healthy for their patient population and their finances, they might have to carve out the IR department and be willing to pay for the coverage and for the services. And that would provide a perfectly symbiotic relationship. And that's Mm -hmm. how it works, for example, for vascular surgery. Mm-hmm. Vascular surgeons can almost always negotiate a stipend for coverage because they know that if they were just going to try and live off of the professional fee, they wouldn't be competitive with their colleagues and peers across the country. But by providing stipends for call coverage or even daily rates and guarantees, the hospital can enjoy that vascular surgeon's services and can also enjoy the larger reimbursement from the cases that that vascular surgeon brings. So that's, I think that's what needs to happen in the marketplace. But in practice, currently in 2022, there are some markets that are very difficult to consider for IR services because of these exclusive contracts that are somewhat impenetrable. Okay, that's great information. I think that's really helpful to you know have perspective in moving forward. All this information is great information for future people who are interested in OBLs, and even not, you know, because obviously, you know, a lot of us, I think we, we don't have a business background. And I think that is wonderful perspective information for future IRs in both starting their own practice and not. One uh, closing question. If you weren't an interventional radiologist, what would you be doing now and, and why? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I would be a chef. I was actually um, a chef in college and through oh, part cool. of medical school. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just really enjoy cooking and I really enjoyed, you know, the restaurant environment. And I think if, uh, if I hadn't gone this route that I chose, I probably would have stayed in the restaurant industry. And oh, is that right? I really like the Southwestern cuisine and I enjoy flavors that are endemic to that style of cooking. So I imagine it would be something along those lines, um, okay. Southwest regional cuisine. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, now I know who to come for recommendations for restaurant recommendations if I'm in <laughs> Phoenix. Again, thank you for yesterday. Really helpful. Obviously, you've got a lot of experience and expertise in this area with, you know, that we don't get at all in training. And I, th- I think you have a wealth of information that will be really helpful for anyone in the future. I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Well, Roger, it was my pleasure to be here. It was, it was fun to participate. I can't wait to talk again. So I'll, I'll do it anytime. That was interventional radiologist Dr. Joel Rainwater describing the prospects for office-based labs as an IR business model. We thank Dr. Rainwater and Dr. Tomahama for their time, and you for listening to The Kink Wild. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surweb.org.